Hey Nick, how's it going today? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. How's your day been so far? Good. Outside in my my outdoor office. Yeah, we're the, uh, the attire in the background. Yeah, finally try, starting to get some nice, uh, decent weather for some outdoor offices. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today and spending a little time. Um, I'm wondering if uh, before we begin, maybe you can just do a, a quick intro and background um, on yourself and kind of what you're working on and then we can just kind of go from there. Sure, sure, yeah. So I'm the chief behavioral scientist at The Behaviorist um, and also advising strategic change consultant and scientist. Uh, before that, I was in academia, so I did a PhD at the University of Toronto and then lectured at various universities, mostly at the University of Toronto as well over the last decade, and then made the leap out of academia into practice. So sort of consider myself a, what we call a behavioral practitioner. Uh, and essentially what that means is uh, I go into organizations and different uh, companies and use science, applied behavioral science and behavioral design techniques and frameworks to, you know, describe, diagnose, and ultimately change employee and customer or user behavior. Um, so really, my mission is is to bring those two worlds together the the uh the academic side of of behavioral science and psychology research and pulling all the insights and and nuggets of wisdom we can from that and applying it to to organizational and and consumer contexts so that's amazing yeah i feel like um do you feel like there's been kind of like a an uptick in how uh how much emphasis organizations are putting on that that type of um research oh. lately this could yeah, probably absolutely. create a whole discussion yeah. and I feel like yeah. maybe we're going to do another one of these yeah. down the road to talk specifically yes. in the context yes. of design and, and product design. Exactly. Like yeah. I'll give you the, the very quick, yeah. just because it's sort of a passion of mine is, is sort of like a, from a philosophy of science, it's really interesting of like, how does that happen? How does that, that transition happen? How do we disseminate and share knowledge from basic research and put it into put it into practice. Yeah. So qu very quickly, there was a, a few books written in 2009, 2010, Nudge, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, and Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. So these three books by these three giants who are economists and psychologists, were making the argument that we should bring this type of behavioral science and behavioral economics to industry, mm -hmm. and first into policy. And so the, the UK government, David Cameron, uh, created some budget and mandate around um, a behavioral insights team or bit what they then called the nudge unit and the nudge unit was first set up in the uk government and there was a sunset clause and they said okay boys you have and boys and girls you have two years to prove if this stuff works came back had a, a really compelling case of for why it is important and the rest is history as they say over the next 10 years from 2010 till now mm. we see dozens and close to 100 nudge units in different governments and different legislation bodies and then now it's made its leap from policy into the private sector so your your classic mbb strategy consulting firms are now being outfitted with behavioral science and behavioral design so in a word yes there's yeah. much much appetite <laughs> much appetite from the market uh for the stuff we do which is great because otherwise we would have just been sitting in academia twiddling our thumbs yeah not doing much and i feel like it's always you know maybe it's being a bit more defined as of recent but um Behavioral psychology has always been a huge part of all consumer behavior, right? Exactly, and that's what that's what I say is is like it's, it's it should be no, no 
nobody should be caught off guard that, that we're not talking about it. Like one of the things I always say is all business is behavioral. Yeah. So if you take anything, even if you take the most technical, even if you take the, the like an accountant, like, you know, the most dry, boring kind of what seems to be the most rational sequence of, of mm-hmm. end to end um, processes at some point in that sequence, you're going to see a behavior, you're going to see an emotion, you're going to see a feeling, you're going to see an action, you're going to see a human. Yeah. Um, and so it's just optimizing for that, that, that part in the process and, and ensuring they're making the best possible decisions uh, to generate the best possible outcomes. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good definition of um, that kind of function. Um, I'm curious to hear about how you've kind of been experiencing uh, physical distancing and all of the kind of associated changes that might be in development. Um, I've done a few of these interviews now and they've all been at different stages of this experience that we're all going through right now. And I think now is a relevant time to have this kind of discussion because um, people are starting to actually uh, think more about what's going to happen with their organization as they start scaling up again and sometimes their industry too. And there's just so many theories, lots of questions. This period of time is going to be a really interesting uh, retrospective in terms of like an, an analysis of what happened and how people acted and how yeah. that's potentially affected the future. So anyways, I'm just curious, like what you're seeing, what you're working on, um, what's interesting to you. Yeah. I'll start, I'll start, um, maybe more broadly and then I'll mm-hmm. dive into my own personal experiences. Um, so, so broadly what's, what's interesting is there's two in, in all of this over the last three, four months, there are two folks who've all of a sudden, two types of people who've all of a sudden entered into the limelight. There's your epidemiologists for the obvious reasons of these are, and, and like, you know, your epidemiologists or, or health officials as part of government units who are c- coming with, with press releases and, and discussing the, the state of affairs and discussing the virology of, of, of um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And and then the, the second type is are the behavioral scientists, um, and what's interesting is we've seen a lot a lot of people from from my world of, of behavioral science come out with with a lot of their own sort of little pet theories and 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 directions of uh, of what we should do from a behavioral standpoint, like mm-hmm. how should governments be? And most of it's been good. There's been some dodgy stuff that's come out as well because. I mean, it's just a massive ball of uncertainty and even scientists, including the epidemiologists often can't agree on what's the best course of action to take. Yeah. So we've been, we've been, we're, we're certainly guilty of that as well. But, but when you think about it, it is a massive behavioral puzzle. Do we lock down? Um, do we see others? Do we visit grandparents? Do I, do I get my parents to help babysit, you know, my kid because daycares, daycares aren't out? Do we see friends? How many, how many, how big of a group do we go golfing? Like, you know, it's endless. And it's, yeah. it's even and personally. And I mean, you probably, of course you and, and any other person who's a person can, can relate to this experience of like, there's just such unknown and there's such a lyric, a lack of clear action that we, we, to, to, that we we're being told to take. Yeah. Um, and what we're also seeing is huge differences between nations, countries, cultures, and governments. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you look at the early action that was taken by countries like Hong Kong and Singapore, 
where one of my colleagues who's a behavioral scientist and organizational theorist over in Hong Kong, he was saying, and it was much earlier over there, of course, he was saying it was in a, within a day, there was sort of this, um, these restrictions were, were put in place by government. And he said within a day, people were fa most people wearing face masks. You go go to any building, any sort of uh, government or, or, or um, company office building, there'd be hand sanitizer and temperature checks upon entering. Mm. And he said it was so swift in action. Singapore was the same. And there's reasons for that cultural differences. There seems to be sort of greater trust in government. There's also this focus on collectivistic values as yeah. opposed to your more classic, or more, not classic, but your more typical Western individualistic yeah, well, system. Just look at the US right now, right? Which is the other extreme of that cultural. Exactly. Gamut. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you so that's the that's the natural extreme to compare Singapore, Hong Kong yeah. um, to is is the US. But what's also an interesting country is New Zealand. So I guess considered a Western country, mm -hmm. higher in individualistic values. But Jacinda Ardern and, and her team did we're now seeing again sort of in this retrospective analysis. Uh, probably one of the best jobs in terms of coming out early, acting swiftly, and most importantly, having clear communication. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did is they said there's four stages. We're now in lockdown. This is stage four. When we hit this point, we will tell you and we'll move to stage three. And, and what does that mean? Well, it means this, this happens, these businesses open. So there's, you can set up expectations for your citizens and for your everyday person so that they know when we move from stage four to stage three, when we move to stage three to stage two and so on, and what that means for my day-to-day my -day existence. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the Ontario and Canadian governments did an okay job, but even in, on my own personal experience, there's a lot of times where I'm wondering, well, what does this mean? Can I do this? Can I do that? Totally. I don't know. Totally. There's no, there's no set of instructions or guiding. There's no like real guiding light. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm sympathetic to those, to those ministers and to those officials who have to come out with the messaging and have to tell people what to do. I can only imagine how difficult it is, but at the end of the day, it is, it is a psychological and a behavioral problem. Um, yeah. and we need sort of those people who, who are, who are trained in behavioral science and psychology to understand the end user and, and the, 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 the citizen to, 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 to be able to direct them towards the best possible course of action. Mm -hmm. And how does that, like, what does that process look like? Do, do some of these countries that have, you know, done a great job, are they, do they take that kind of approach or have they taken that kind of approach where they involve behavioral science in, in these decisions? Or is it just like everything's changing and happening so fast that you don't even have time to really yeah. do that? That's a great question. I think if they have, and I actually don't have any direct data, so this is mostly speculation on my mm -hmm. part. And I, I should actually be reaching out to my colleagues who are in policy, like the behavioral practitioners who are in policy, to see if this is the case. But my, my hypothesis, my hunch is, if those governments have the existing nudge units or their behavioral insights team in place over the, over the last five, 10 years, yeah. and if they have the talent, if they have the infrastructure, if they have the mandate and the budget to, for these teams to do um, their work, I suspect they, they would have been un, involved from the, from the, from the, uh, from the outset, from mm -hmm. the very beginning. Um, but I, I would actually be curious to see how that, we could sort of look at what are all the governments with strong behavioral insights teams 
and to see if that maps onto the, the different responses that we're observing and you know across across different yeah. nations and across different governments yeah i guess that, i'm not sure that is probably a huge part of that too right like to figure out how people would be most likely to respond is that kind of would that be something that an approach that would be part of that yeah exactly and and people are going to respond differently right so mm -hmm. for instance any instructions or any messaging that you come out with in some country in East Asia, East, Southeast Asia, that might work for that population, but it's not necessarily going to be um, effective for say the U S for the American mm -hmm. population, where mm -hmm. as we're seeing, they see any sort of restriction or lockdown measure as an, as a direct threat and encroachment to their individual liberty and freedom. Yeah. So there's, there's the, what is it that the famous line, give me, give me liberty or give me death. And I've yeah. seen in, in um, protests over the last, this was about a month ago, in Michigan, I believe, where there was signs of these protesters saying, give me liberty or give me, uh, give me COVID-19. <laughs> so it's, it's for, for, in the mind of these people, liberty is so important that yeah. they are willing to risk, you know, their own lives and their lives of their compatriots um, because liberty and individual freedom trumps all. Mm -hmm. So interesting. And so how, how, does, a, how does a government respond to that yeah that's a real cha real challenge and so i'll give a, one one example um we do know that when it comes to behavior change political affiliation matters a, gre a great deal um so if you send a messaging a certain messaging uh to to uh, a, a democrat it'll work for him or her but the same messaging won't work for your, your typical sort of right-leaning Republican. Mm -hmm. So an example, and there's, there's data to support this, to show this is with um, climate change. The, the typical appeals that you see in, in climate change um, call-outs and, 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 and campaigns and initiatives is very biased towards Democrats and liberals. It's about um, sort of the, the, the value systems that appeal to, the, to that left leaning person are things like reciprocity, fairness, um, doing sort of what's right for the, for, for, for humans, not just yourself. So being sort of more pro-social Republicans and right leaning folks, they, they also value those things, but there are, they are sort of guided by a different set of ethics and values. And those mm -hmm. are mostly, um, patriotism, um, and in group, uh, loyalty. And the third one, which is really interesting, is called sort of um, disgust sensitivity. So I'll walk through disgust sensitivity. That's a super Basically, interesting one. Yeah. So conservatives, on average, on the whole, tend to be more averse to uh, things that are unnatural in the natural world, things yeah. that are perceived as, as disgusting. Yeah. And it tends to evoke a stronger response in your Republicans or your right-leaning folks. So given that... What they found in this in this work was that when you frame the appeals of climate change more to in a, in a way that's more likely to resonate with a Republican, i.e., do this so you can have beautiful, clean rivers of of you know freedom rivers of the U.S. and and so that it's clean and not tainted with disgusting toxins, you know those sorts of appeals they found work more effectively with Republicans. So taking those lessons, I think we should apply the same set of 
protocol and the same practices for uh, social restriction and lockdown measures. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the bigger the bigger point here is that there's not a one size fits all solution that's going to work for all populations and all people. Yeah, that's so interesting because then you have all the complications of you know multiple messages, multiple channels, uh, and I, I feel like generally. Um, like you said, I think in, in Canada, um, you know, the government's been doing a pretty good job. Okay. Um, but that's one thing that I, I, you know, I feel like it's been one message across all channels. I I don't know. And maybe it's just, I'm being targeted through the channels that I would be (laughs) listening to. And maybe that's why I think that because I've never heard any other messaging, but it feels like it's, it's a consistent message across everything blasted across everything and not really considerate of uh behavioral science basically yeah yeah exactly and it's not what we call like accounting for hetero heterogeneity or there's going to be heterogeneous yeah. effects that, right and i think i yeah. think it is taking a very liberal slant uh it's, it's it's a liberal slant as opposed to maybe that's true. Know, the more conservative yeah yeah that's true have and you, i mean we're seeing that too right we're seeing sort of like not as much as the riots in the u.s but even in my own social media circles where for some reason I have, not for some reason, I'm glad that I have more conservative and right-minded individuals on my, on my Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Like we're seeing that we're seeing a pushback. We're seeing Mm, for sure people, people being upset about restrictions and that it's, it's, it's an affront to their personal liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you, um, is there any kind of research going into, okay, well, this is where we are now for a sustained period of time. What kind of behavioral changes are we going to see going forward? If any, I don't even know, you know, is it enough time to even create some, some lasting effects or some short-term effects? Like, is anyone kind of looking at that? I I believe they are. Um, Most of the work, that's coming out that I, that I see, um, you know, in my feed and in my circle is, is, is asking the question, what is the type of person who is going to change and what is the type of person who is going to be more resistant to change? Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that fit in with the, the government, you know, structure of, of that particular country? Um, so it is, they're asking, you know, this is a new normal. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, are you accepting, sort of asking the question, are you accepting of the changes that are going to occur in the next two, three, six, 12 months um, and gauging people's willingness to change and then seeing what are the individual or the personality predictors which will tell us why person A is going to be like, yeah, I'm on board versus person B who says, absolutely not screw you. I don't like what you're saying whatsoever. So there's a lot of interesting work showing that not surprising. One is related to political affiliation. Hmm. So all else being equal, more conservative minded and Republican folks uh, are pushing back more and are less, uh, sorry, more resistant to any change. And it makes sense, right? By the very definition of the word conservative, they want to conserve what was done in the past. Um, Change is more aversive to that typical, that, that type of individual than, than their more liberal counterpart. Um, There's also people who are, uh, let's see here. I'm trying to think 
people who are high in neuroticism. So neuroticism is part of what we call the big five personality assessment. So any individual can be boiled down, no matter where you are across the world, can be boiled down to five traits. Um, the acronym is OCEAN. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And all five of those have their opposite extremes. So yeah. you take extroversion, the opposite of extroversion is introversion. And then with neuroticism, the opposite is emotionally balanced. So what we're finding in a recent study that came out a couple of weeks ago is that people who are quite high in neuroticism, so people who are neurotic, are much more likely to listen to government mandate and government restrictions of lockdown. So that that's one, one group, I'd say. Yeah. The second group are people who have uh, concerns of infectious disease or people who are, again, high in disgust sensitivity. Uh, so people who are concerned about kind of like your typical um, hypochondriac. So people who are sort mm -hmm. of really high in that, they tend to be more willing to, 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 to change in line with tighter restrictions. Um, and then the third one I'll mention is, is the opposite. What we call in psychology, personality psychology, the dark triad, <laughs> such a, a name. And Very ominous. The dark, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so the dark triad is um, some people who are high in three traits which make up the dark triad. They are mm -hmm. Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. So mm -hmm. if, you have people, if you have a person who's, who's high in the dark triad, they're, as you can imagine, not a, not a great person. You wouldn't want them as a friend. Yeah. Um, and what we see is that higher levels of those three traits, higher levels of the dark triad, Mm -hmm. um, are associated with uh, a, a reduced acceptance of change through government mm -hmm. uh, restrictions. So um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's most of the work that I see coming out now. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a very unique point in time where we have all this data and basically you're able to study the entire world if you wanted to, right? Like everyone's kind of like under the same fluctuating restrictions and government oversight um, and just exactly. responding completely differently. It's amazing. And, and so, so on that point, what's really, and I'm working on a, a piece with a, a collaborator of mine. Um, this is a hypothesis that we have is, so going back to our initial conversation about like behavioral insights and the, the broader trends of what these people do. Um, when you think about a, an individual, when you think about any, any person, you or I, we are simply <laughs> the result of two forces. Our environment, that includes the social environment, the physical environment, the digital mm -hmm. environment, but the sort of the surrounding context, and then our personality. And it's those two things in combination which predict how we feel, how we act, who we interact with, how we interact with them, essentially our behaviors, our, our mm -hmm. everyday behaviors, can be predicted by some combination of the context or the situation and our personality. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to behavioral insights uh, over the last 10 years, 95% has focused on the situation or the context. And it's mostly ignored personality or what we call individual differences factors. Mm. But what's interesting is now we're seeing all this research that I just talked about, dark triad, neuroticism, that's all personality. Yeah. And much of the research that's coming out now is more in line with personality psych as opposed to the social psych or the context psych. Um, and the reason we think is because everyone is, mo most people are in the same environment. That is at home yeah, with their family. That makes sense, yeah. 
So the number of possible contextual variables has greatly decreased over the last four months. And so what that means is when you're looking at those two forces of situation and, and, and personality, it means situation has gone down and it's going to allow personality to come to the fore. So when we see differences in people's behaviors, it's mostly going to be driven by differences in their associated personalities, as opposed to any sort of differences in their environmental constraint, you know, the constraints of the environment, hmm. simply because our environments are so similar right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. That must make analysis a little bit more manageable if you're kind of controlling all these potential variables on that side. But I, I would assume that also like the assumptions that you make are kind of, well, not assumptions, data-driven assumptions are kind mm -hmm. of um, within a vacuum. Like how do you then look at that in context with other situations if the variable has completely, like one of the variables has completely changed? Yeah, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it makes for a, a, a tricky, because now, now what's, what's happening is psychologists who are more in like the academic side, they usually do these things in a controlled laboratory environment, right? Like mm, right. They, they bring subjects into a lab, they strap them up to like a, a brainwave cap, um, they give them a test, they, they push on this, prod on that, and then observe some sort of change in their behavior or emotional state, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, you, what's happening now is the laboratory of real life. Like we have yeah. COVID-19 happening and we're witnessing just all of these amazing things, amazing and scary and terrible things happen as a result of it all. And psychologists and behavioral scientists are now coming out of the labs, coming out of the research institutions and going back into the wild mm -hmm. where, where all of this is happening. So that's good. But what it also means is we lose methodological control. Yeah. We lose statistical control because we don't have a controlled laboratory environment. We have all of life and the messiness of life, yeah. which we, which we, which we just, we can't put a lid on when totally. we're, when we're observing people's behaviors. So it's complicating everything, even scientific research. Yes. <laughs> it's really, it's really fucking up everything, <laughs> but it's also, it's also giving us a tremendous opportunity. Um, because part of the part of the criticism of psychology as a science is that we're not really studying real world behaviors. We've been we've been studying yeah. behaviors that are in a contrived artificial laboratory context that are devoid of the, the real contextual factors of life. Yeah. So this might be the one thing within our science that says to to, to really truly build the bridges between the academics and the practitioners mm -hmm. and for those collaborations to happen because if it does work and if we do it well then we're going to come out on the other side understanding humans in a much better way than we have over the last century of our science yeah that's amazing um i know we're almost out of time i just wanted to ask you one more thing before we we started uh kind of having this discussion we had talked a little bit um about remote work and how uh, matt mullenweg was kind of like uh, an example of someone who had an interesting view about remote work. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about um, the future of remote work. And for those who don't know, Matt Mullenweg is the founder of WordPress and kind of famous for setting up their business to be a completely re remote working uh, workforce, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's, 
seen as the as the pioneer of the distributed and remote workforce mm-hmm. uh, with with WordPress and his and his other companies. Um, and he he was at, at when he first started it. It was sort of a wild idea. I mean, this is back in the early two thousands. Um, way before Slack or any of these other sort of plug and play solutions that we now have. And he was convinced that it was the right way to go and that it, w- it would work. And at first people sort of his critics said, okay, that's fine when you have a team of five or 10, but what happens when you have a team of a hundred? No way. Um, and then he proved them wrong, continued to work. And then they said, okay, well, when you have a team of a thousand and more, no way, it's not going to work. And again, he proved them wrong and that's where he is today. And it's it's really a lesson in, in any organization um, in your your typical knowledge economy and information worker that you can be a distributed workforce. Um, and he, he, I was listening to him give a talk, and he draws his inspiration from research in social psychology that's called um, self determination theory. Mm. And uh, these researchers in the 80s and 90s named DC and Ryan uh, came up with this idea that there's three components to our behavior, to any human behavior that drives why we do what we do and the decisions that we make and the relationships that we have. And those three things are um, competence, autonomy, and relatedness. So going through each one in turn, competence is the idea that we feel that work we do, we can do it well. We feel a sense of mastery and achievement with it. Autonomy is the idea that we feel some personal freedom, that we have personal choice in the, the actions that we decide to do. Mm-hmm. And then third is relatedness, and that is essentially the, the feeling of belonging and, and having important and valuable relationships. So he drew on that research in a book, I believe it was the Daniel Pink book, that was based off of cool. social determinism, uh, self-determinism theory. And he, he basically saw the question of being remote as fitting within the framework of, of these motivational needs. And he, he talks about, um, I don't know if it's four or five levels, but he sort of says there's varying levels of, of an organization or a team's ability to, to, remote, to work remotely. Mm-hmm. And it's something like level one is there's not, it's, it's not present whatsoever. And the vast majority of, of, of knowledge economy workforce and organizations are in level one that they, they're not set up. And this was pre pandemic and then the mm-hmm. pandemic hit and they didn't have a choice. And so they were sort of, most organizations were sort of left scrambling saying like we, they, they didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the, uh, the, the, the solutions and the tools in place to allow this to, to sort of happen seamlessly. They made, I think a lot of organizations and even my own experience with clients is they made it work. They sort of just scrambled and like put some stuff together in a, in a hurried fashion and, 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 and got things working that way. So that mm-hmm, sort of yeah. bumped people, those, those teams from level one to level two. But then as, as Matt Mullenweg explains, as you go all the way up to level four or five, whichever the top level is, that's where you have all of the tools in place to allow for the seamless integration of people working from home. That's where you have multiple geographies, multiple time zones. And he even talks about this sort of like baton passing where <clears throat> central Europe and South, or I guess first, if you're truly global, you know, your Australia and Southeast Asia geographies, those, those people on the team will w- wake up first and then they'll pass off to central Europe and then central Europe will pass off to North America and That's the different wild. time zones, even within those. And, and he says, if you get good at it, you can sort of just, you're covered for 24 hours. Yeah. There's no downtime. 
which is so cool, right? Yeah. Um, and then the final thing I'll say, which he, talking about the autonomy in particular when it comes to distributed work, work for us is a big deal. We spend so much time doing it and, and at it, we spend like the majority of our waking hours in our adult life is, is dedicated to work. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a big decision for, for us as adults. It's on the same level as the, the big decisions that we make of who we partner with, um, uh, whether we marry, where we move, whether we have family and, and children, like it's, it's that same level, right? Yeah. So when we make, when we make the decisions of who we partner with, who we marry and whether we have kids and how many or whatever it is, we have say, we have choice. We like to think we have choice, right? We're not being forced and say, you have to marry this person, although that is also a reality for some people. We're not being forced to have children. We're not being forced to, you know, we have this freedom to decide. And that is so important for our well-being. Mm-hmm. And Matt Mullenweg says, in your typical non-distributed sort of go into the office work, workplace, choice is removed. You have to sit where you're assigned in off, off cases. You have to, you don't have, you don't get to choose the people you surround yourself with. They're your colleagues and they're going to sit next to you or in that same sort of office or the co-located space. And, and you don't have a choice. You might hate them. They might hate you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, even, even down to what seems trivial, but is really important for our individual motivational needs is the temperature of the office. How, how often I've heard people complain that it's too hot or too cold. Whereas all those things, if you're in a truly distributed level five workplace, you have so much more choice and freedom that you yeah. can say, I'm going to set my thermostat here. I'm going to work beside my wife or my husband because I like them. Um, I'm going to sit in my backyard. Yeah. You know, these things, these things matter for yeah. our, for our well-being. And, and, and the whole pandemic has forced us and forced organizations to think about these things, to think seriously about these things. Super interesting. Um, I'm going to definitely do a little bit more research on that because I think it's fascinating. Um, And I wonder whether there's connections between, yeah, I wonder like, you know, would, would we consider the the workforce of WordPress and like the culture within the organization as like a top tier culture and workplace? I, I, I don't know. I don't really know that much about their kind of like internal culture and stuff like that, but it sounds like if you're kind of hitting all these pieces, theoretically, it would be a much better place to work. People would be happier. There'd be more output and there'd be more quality as well, probably. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm just curious to see whether there's any long lasting effects um, that are connected to remote work because um, I think also, you know, like this is the first time ever where organizations large organizations are looking at their rent every month and saying, yeah. why, like we're do- we're still operating. We're doing all the work that we would be doing. Uh, there might be some challenges around it and probably some strategic changes, but why are we spending a million dollars a year yeah. per floor sometimes on these huge office towers? It's like, yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah, and, and you know, there's other companies like Buffer is another one I think that's truly distributed, and it's it is it's an empirical question for researchers, psychologists, and organizational behavior mm. and management theorists to sort of say, okay, are are they faring better? You know, do they have higher yeah. returns? Do they have higher employee satisfaction? And so it's a question to see. And what's going to be? I mean, psychologists are just they're going to have a field day over the next six months, year, five years, because there's going to be this sort of like things are business as usual. And then pandemic hits and everything changes. And then they're going to be able to track that data 
and assess whether things like remote work is better. You know, and, and, and I mean, they're gonna, they're, there's just so much data coming out of it that in, in two, five years to five years from now, we'll be able to have a sense to, to, to really come up with answers to these questions that we're now wondering, mm-hmm. is it better? Is it yeah. more effective? Yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll have researchers answering those questions, hopefully. Yeah, that's awesome. So much data. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me, Marcel. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, and we'll uh, chat soon. Okay, man. Take care. Bye.